HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit hearstranch.com. Broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Look in the pantry or kitchen cabinet of any household, and you're likely to find one common item, a can of tuna. We'll explore that popular fish today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, welcome to A Taste of the Past here on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. And I mentioned that a can of tuna would probably be the one common item in any pantry or any kitchen cabinet. And as common as canned tuna is today, few Americans even ate tuna before the 20th century. And raw tuna was virtually unknown. So how did tuna rise out of obscurity in America? We're going to explore that today with the author Andrew F. Smith. Andy, to those of us who are on a, on a one-to-one basis with him, Andrew has just published a brand new book called American Tuna, The Rise and Fall of an Improbable Food. Andy is a writer and a lecturer on food and culinary history and, and the, an author of... Uh, 19 books? Many, many. Many, okay. 19, and an editor and author of 19 books. He teaches a course at the New School on Culinary History, and he's edited the American Oxford, the Oxford Encyclopedia of American Food, of food and Drink in America. I'll never get that right. The Oxford Encyclopedia of Food and Drink in America. We just call it the OEFDA, too. The, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, and, uh, Andy, I'm... Welcome. I'm I'm intrigued by this book. I read it cover to cover very quickly because it it just I I cannot imagine how such a book it covers such a broad scope of social history. Everything from US foreign policy, immigration, environmental politics, food regulation, and, and of course American dietary trends. Tell me how did what, why, why was tuna, why didn't we know about tuna? The Mediterraneans, even the Romans, as you said, were eating tuna. 
Why was tuna unknown in America? Well, the, part of the problem uh, was that Englishmen didn't eat tuna. They're, they're not a Mediterranean people. And so uh, America, uh, while it was settled with many different people, it was the English that dominated, and English cuisine which dominated. And tuna simply wasn't a part of their diet. So it is only after Mediterranean people started moving into America and uh, people from Japan uh, began to move into America on the West Coast that you begin to have an interest in tuna, but mm-hmm. it was limited in the 19th century to a very small group of people. Most Americans just simply didn't know about it, uh, and those who did know about it thought it was a trash food. Uh, and also, if you look at the markets, the fish markets that were available, for instance, in New York or Los Angeles or Boston, you'll see thousands of different types of fish. And so they had this huge diversity of fish to choose from, and uh, tuna, uh, much of tuna is dark meat, and when you cook it, it turns an, a very unpleasant brown color. Mm-hmm, uh, at least it does for the 19th century people. And Still so, does, so they look at it and said, no, that's not what we want. Uh-huh. Well, it, it's interesting because um, you say that it was, it, it was considered uh, not a pleasant fish. And often in your book, you refer to the fact that it was called an oily, smelly fish. It is oily. It is oily. And, but, and but, they, but people were eating mackerel. They liked mackerel. Well, it really isn't until they figured out how to get rid of the oil uh, when, they, when, when mainstream Americans began to consume it. So mm-hmm. uh, I think that that's part of it. Uh, and yes, it may be other fish, but, once, but mackerel is a part of English diet. So, so therefore, you accept things that are there, but don't necessarily accept things that are not Englishmen. Englishmen don't eat that. Yeah, true. So it was uh, used as fertilizer and chicken it feed was. and anything if else? If it were caught by accident, which indeed tuna was, I mean, you, they tried to sell it, and they even tried to sell it at cut-rate prices for the poor. Uh, but um, Even the poor didn't t- want it. T- t- uh, even the poor didn't want it when they had alternatives. And, and so they are fi- there are fish-rendering plants that convert fish to oil. Um, in the 19th century, before before you had um, ethanol come on on uh, gasoline and that sort of thing, so it was for lighting and for all sorts of other purposes. But tuna oil wasn't that good, so they preferred whale oil. Mm-hmm. Well, now explain to me um, to our listeners about tuna. Those who aren't maybe that familiar, they haven't gone to a fish market and seen. Well, rarely in America do you get a chance to see an entire tuna, but tuna, the kind that we um, predominantly eat are the albacore uh, well uh, actually it's a little confusing because okay. the tuna that most of us eat skipjack which isn't tuna at That's all right. so um you you really have a problem between um, um a, a scientific definition and uh, and, a, and a biological definition and, and a consumer definition so much of the dark meat that appears in tuna cans for instance is not not uh, a tuna species, but is skipjack, which is a relatively small fish, um, and, um, and and relatively easy to catch and uh, proliferates all over the place. So, mm-hmm. so that's the main part. Uh, the top of the line, of course, is uh, the bluefin, and it, the bluefin is the core food for uh, sushi and right. um, the latest. Um, the latest uh, tuna prices, for instance, on January 4th of this year, a single bluefin tuna uh, was uh, paid, uh, excuse me, cost $743,000 for a single fish. Of course, we learned a lot about that once the Japanese came in, but 
bring us back. And well, so, so yeah. you have a number of varieties that are on the, the smaller one would be the albacore. And the albacore is what most of us are, com- are, are familiar with. Mm-hmm. And albacore was very common on the West Coast and is very common in the Pacific. So um, that is one of the, the two fish that and the tuna species that are not stressed at this time. So the, the, the tuna fishing really um, began more on the West Coast? Uh, well, there, there were there were some uh, t- attempts at fishing on the East Coast, but it was really by sports fishermen who were looking to catch a big fish. And so, what they would do is they have hand rigs. They would put the put the line into the water, uh, and they would wait till the tuna bit into it, and then they would let it swim around and then they would haul it in when it tired out and they would have their picture taken with it and they would then <laughs> send send the tuna off to the uh, fertilizer factory or send it off to the, uh, the oil conversion so mm-hmm. so that's that is some of that did happen on the east coast but it's on the west coast that the tuna industry that we know and uh, the tuna canning industry begins and it's quite by accident it isn't it isn't as though you know this somebody said oh this is where we're going to go catch tuna they really had a canning factory in San Pedro, California, that was looking for sardines, which was a common part of American diet at that point. And the sardines didn't appear one year. And so they had to change to other fish. And there was lots of fish in the San Pedro Bay and in uh, the Catalina Islands area. So um, they just started catching other fish. And they canned different types of fish, one of which was albacore. And uh, they they found a process whereby, after years of three or four years of experimentation of how they could get rid of the oil and how they would only uh, can the white meat of the albacore. So twenty five percent of the fish was used for that purpose. The rest of it was still put into fertilizer and still put into oil. <laughs> so it is that it is that um, is that which begins the tuna uh, industry. And as strange as this is, at the time, biologically, albacore wasn't a, considered a tuna species. It is today, but it wasn't then. So no one knew what albacore was. And so they had to create very creative ways of trying to get Americans to eat it. And the obvious one was it tastes like chicken. Yeah, so, right. <laughs> so that's the promotion part. Or, or what one, somebody said, a fishy veal. Right? A fishy veal. <laughs> yeah, right. All sorts of different people came along and had different definitions, but it, it was the taste like chicken that Chicken stuck. of the sea. It stuck. Right. And, and so you had a commercialization of it in America. And, and of course, it is a very mild taste. Once you remove the oil, it's a very mild tasting uh, fish. And mm-hmm. so therefore, you could Every every tuna every chicken recipe that you had you could actually substitute tuna for <laughs> so tuna salad chicken salad um, tuna noodle casserole chicken casserole I mean you could have all sorts of things with it. well prior to the Americans getting in on the canning industry I mean it had been canned in yes in France or in, in Portugal there was some low level canning in Portugal and in uh, Italy and in France in southern mm-hmm. France and it was uh, considered a uh, in the Mediterranean it was a common food but outside of the Mediterranean it was an upper class food and and that was sold in um, Delmonico's restaurant for instance mm. here in New York and other other haute cuisine restaurants but it's a canned uh, or, or salted tuna that will come in and that will be prepared in special ways mm. uh, but that's the exception not the rule well you write that even as late as the 1880s the US Commission of Fish and Fisheries reported that although occurring in large numbers and of remarkable size and I quote from your book no effort is made toward their capture. Well, you explained that that yeah. started to change. Um, and, and even one prescient writer for what was it, the Fishing Gazette said uh, that a time will probably come 
when it will form a more important feature of marketable fish. Wow, he should have banked on that one. Yeah. <laughs> I'll bet you he should have said. Yeah, well, uh, here's my wager, yes. Yeah, right. Um, be, be, because then the canning industry just took off. You also gave some interesting numbers on immigration, and and I was astounded at the more than exponential growth of the Mediterranean yes. population. I mean, that in the 1850s, it only... 4,000 documented Italian people, people of Italian descent living uh, in America. Of Italian heritage, yes. Yeah. Not, not just people who immigrated from Italy. It's Italian back, heritage. Even with background, And right. it's after the Civil War that you have begin to have this massive um, immigration from uh, from Italy. But it's not just from Italy. It's also from um, the Azores. And, mm-hmm. it's, and it's from uh, what, what's today um, the former Yugoslavia. And it's from the Mediterranean islands and things of that sort. So you have people that were very familiar with tuna. They knew how to catch it. They knew how to prepare it and they loved eating it and so that at least becomes a minority food in new york and those places that had large immigrant populations so fast forward to the well even the the 20s i mean the canning industry just took off yeah it's it's really the first known tuna can rolled off the assembly line in uh, 1904 it was essentially a failure in, in 205 206 207 it's only in 208 that they be excuse me 1908 <laughs> my mind is my mind is <laughs> yeah, in a different right. century now it's only in 1908 that you really begin to have um, the, uh, the the commercialization of tuna when they figure out how to do it at that point they figured out that they could sell it that there was a that there was a large immigrant group that would buy it um, even if they couldn't attract mainstream Americans. And, and then they start advertising and promoting it. Yeah. And in a very short period of time, it goes from um, one can, one one in, uh, factory that's canning tuna to five factories to 15 factories to 30 factories. And that's a period of about five years. So it's something that just is the right time and the right place and the right fish. So they really changed Americans' perception. I mean, the perception had been that of a, as you say, a repulsive bottom feeder. Yeah. Well, and, now, a, and then it became a, this, this, you know, uh, the, tasty. Well, the changing perception actually begins earlier, and, and it starts with a very unlikely group of people, sports fishermen. Yeah. And uh, sports fishermen uh, in America, I mean, the uh, freshwater force sports fishing industry, or excuse me, uh, fishing um, um, you know, professionals begin to have their own clubs and that sort of thing, and actually in the 18th century, but they never applied their principles of sports fishing to catch and release. To <laughs> no, to ocean fishing, oh. and so um, it is the sports fishermen that go to Catalina in the late. Um, uh, 1890s that begin to catch these fish that are three, four, five hundred pounds, um, and some some will end up at a thousand and fifteen hundred pounds, um, and this makes news all over America. And so it's not only men; it's also women, and they're catching these fish and they're having their picture taken with them, and they're having their tuna stuffed, and um, and they're sending their tuna back to their home, and they're putting it over their uh, fireplace. I mean, <laughs> that, I mean, it's, it's, it's a whole thing. And the amazing thing is the front page coverage that this gets in newspapers all over the United. United States. You have the beginning of fishing magazines that start at the same time, mm-hmm. and they start telling these tales. And as soon as this happens, professional fishermen start flocking to Southern California to catch these big fish. You know, they're that big. There's a profit in it somewhere. Well, right? there's a profit of, of at least not make selling it, but but profit of, of uh, catching it and um, and struggling with this fish. And and by the way, yes, um, all the early evidence indicates the tuna usually won the fight. Uh, mm. So the tuna uh, they had reaped a whole 
whole series of fish hooks and reels and even fishermen were pulled overboard by these fish. I mean, they're huge and they're powerful. And, and they do um, put up a good fight. And they huh? do put up a good fight. And so it becomes a sports a sports fish to begin with. And, well, you, uh, you wrote, too, about how a lot of professional fishermen um, despise the tuna yeah. because they, they would they would ruin their nets. I mean, they were aggressive. Yeah. Right? Historically, the bluefin uh, would be chasing the same fish that the fishermen are, are after, and the bluefin was big enough where they would go right through the rope nets that they had and would go through one side, eat what was inside the nets, and then they'd go right out the other side. So fishermen were not happy with the big the big tuna, uh, the albacore and others. So And those those were those that chicken um, on the East Coast that they were familiar with. Mm-hmm. Well, the uh, the canning industry often relied, I mean, mostly relied, uh, you say, on frozen tuna. So we've got a couple things happening here. We've got uh, bird's not, eye coming in. and, and Yeah, and, that's not until uh, you have albacore is the tuna fish to begin with. And, of course, um, albacore um, will be depleted in the areas that the fishermen were going for and so they start they start replacing it with other species and yellowfin is a, is a good example and then skipjack and, um, and 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 other fish that they begin to can in the name of tuna and mm-hmm. that's it in the 1920s it is cheaper to import frozen tuna from Japan, which is by far the the single largest and most professional tuna uh, group uh, in the world at that time. Um, and they imported there into the United States and frozen. And so you had small canneries that depended on this frozen tuna that was coming in to Seattle, where the fish themselves weren't available off the coast. Um, and so they had this tuna industry that really is bifurcated to begin with. Uh, and, of course, as the 30s go on, as the 40s go on, and the anti-Japanese feeling increases in America, this is all part of, of what happens before World War II. Well, and then um, you talk a lot about how the canning industry, you say, um, you just mentioned that the, through advertising, they became very popular, and they hired people to write recipes and write booklets. They did. And oh, I've, of course, I've, booklets are a whole... That's a whole other book right I, there, too, I, on I, recipe I, booklets. I, I start... And that's a part of my professional interest in tuna began when I started acquiring these tuna booklets from um, the earliest one I had was 1912. But hmm. uh, there are probably about 50 of them that each company put out. And the problem was Americans might be convinced to buy something called chicken of the sea, but they needed, what do you do, what do, you with, do it? with it? Right. And uh, at that point, cookbooks did not have tuna recipes in them. And, uh, and cooking magazines had relatively few recipes for cooking and preparing tuna. So consequently, um, you begin to have these little booklets that came out by the companies and they gave them away mm-hmm. and they're tremendous. They're beautiful. And, uh, and there's, they're really wonderful color, spectacular, and I'm, I'm delighted that I was able to collect as many Well, as you also mentioned, this This amazed me, that the in, that industry was one of the first to begin printing recipes right on the label of the cans. I, I know of no other uh, can uh, manufacturer that printed recipes on there. And again, in part, it's a new food that comes onto the American diet, so... So you need recipes, and yeah. not everybody is going to get the tuna uh, cookbooklet. So consequently, they put these recipes on them. Right on the can. And, in, then, and then they came out with the brilliant idea of to peel off the label and have the recipe on the inside of the label. Yeah, it starts, or you could only do one on the outside and still have your brand name and have all the other information that you needed to have on it, and the picture and whatnot. And, but but you, on the inside of it, you could put all sorts of different uh, recipes.
recipes. And, right, and right. There, they had three recipes. But they had dozens of different types. And so you actually could buy um, a cookbooklet. You could acquire a cookbooklet by just getting um, the uh, labels and taking them off of several different <laughs> versions of Paste the, them on a page. And they have numbers on them. So you know from yeah. the outside what, what the recipes are on the inside. So well, that recipe a, printing on the inside labels, that persists today. Today, yeah, sure. Right. Yeah, but I, 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 never, I have not, not seen Not on tuna, it. but not, on, on other things like uh, evaporated milk, I think, or sweetened condensed milk and a few things. Yeah, I did, I've never seen it on anything else. And so to the best of my knowledge, that was the first use of yeah, it. Yeah, amazing. Well, we're going to talk about some of those historical recipes and uses of tuna and the uh, introduction of raw tuna and mm. people eating fresh tuna when we come back after a short break. You're listening to I'm Not Gonna Cry by Sharon Jones and the Dad Kings. Grass-fed beef, pasture-raised on 150,000 acres in Central California. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, free-range, sustainably produced, humane. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, the authentic flavor of the American West. Okay, now to use an Andy Smith method, I'm going to say, raise your hand if you've never had a tuna sandwich. Ooh, there are no hands raised out there. <laughs> I'm does, does, does life exist without consuming a, a tuna sandwich? Oh, come on, tuna, or a tuna salad or something. I'm talking with Andy Smith, the author of American Tuna, The Rise and Fall of an Improbable Food. And Andy, I, I joke because Andy uses this uh, this raise your hand method a lot in his lectures, and it's very effective, I might add. you got to get people but, doing something. That's right. <laughs> Just sitting there, they fall asleep. Participatory <laughs> lecture, right? Um, but true, who hasn't had a tuna salad sandwich or a tuna salad? Uh, you know, stuffed in a tomato or something, and you do include some wonderful recipes. Some I, I just are, are new to me, but the of course the ever present tuna noodle casserole, and we're going to talk about those in a minute. But first, I want to cover we okay we established that the perception of tuna became more acceptable to the American public, and canned tuna took off. Now we have the introduction of fresh tuna, and more than fresh tuna, the introduction of Raw tuna. 
If someone had asked me in the night when I grew up in the 1950s that people anybody would be eating raw tuna, I would have said that they're crazy and that they need to be put in an insane asylum someplace. <laughs> that was simply not on the on a mainstream American agenda, Absolutely and it not. wasn't even on uh, the, the Japanese community agenda. There were certainly some restaurants that had raw tuna, but by and large, uh, it wasn't even a part of Japanese food. Uh, that prepared in the United States for the Japanese community. So it was here, but it was not a big deal. And that was one of the things that I, when I started the book, I wanted to ask, how, how could this happen that Americans could be convinced <laughs> to consume raw fish? Um, and, uh, and so part of that was rec- remembering back uh, to my own early childhood and remembering, you know, no, you can't eat raw food. You can't got to do this, you got to do that. And, um, and it really is uh, an unusual story that does not start in Los Angeles, where you would have expected it to, with the large Japanese community or the southern or the West Coast, but it starts in New York, where there's a very small group of, of, of Japanese restaurateurs who are here. But they were discovered by Craig Claiborne, and Craig <laughs> Claiborne was um, a col- food columnist for the New York Times, and uh, he discovered them and uh, started writing about this. Well, Americans wouldn't like this raw fish stuff, but it's here; it's pretty good. And in a period of like two years from 1961 to 1963 all of a sudden he said this is the greatest thing i've ever had before then he goes to (laughs) japan and and he comes back and he tells all of these wonderful things about these sushi bars and things of that sort and other food writers then began picking it up you had more restaurant more high-end japanese restaurants opening not just in new york but in other cities as well and sushi becomes a part of that and then you have the shift and change with the immigration laws making it possible for professionals to immigrate into the United States, um, in this case, sushi chefs. And if they'd stayed in Japan, it would have taken them years to become a sushi master. But right. they can start off, uh, be good good chefs and come to America, get huge visibility. And many of them did that. They made a lot of money. Then they went back, and they were sushi master by the time they got back in Japan. Yeah. So you had this all of a sudden, everything together at the same time. Um, that created uh, this this love of sushi, which now is mainstream. It's well, backing up to when we were talking about the um, the fishing for uh, tuna, and you said the the Japanese had the best that we were importing yes. tuna from them. But the and immigration of the sushi chefs, immigration was a big problem. Yes, in terms of the fishing and in terms of. Uh, how we were protecting our fishing rights and uh well yeah there were two different issues one was that there was an anti-asian hysteria that went on on the west coast um, and that started because of chinese immigration that uh, was relatively large in terms of the total population of uh, the west coast at that time and the japanese simply got the tail end of that anti-asian feeling and the nativist move moved in california then you had hearst a newspaper not having to do with the Hearst Farm yes. <laughs> uh, that um, that begins to engage in this anti-Japanese rhetoric that goes on for almost uh, 20 years just before World War and obviously uh, uh, crescendos in uh, World War II itself. So, so you have these different things that are going on with regard to immigration. In 1924, the United States shut off all, all immigration from all other countries with a few minor exceptions. And so uh, it is the tuna industry 
that it is the Japanese fishermen that are the core of the tuna industry uh, for catching albacore. You, you had you could not do that with nets. They didn't know how to do that with nets and still save the albacore, so they had to do it with laying hand lines, and it was only the Japanese who were professionals at catching that. So it's the Japanese fishermen that really start the American tuna industry. Mm-hmm. So then, and then followed years later, the our love of sushi. And and, and, then, and then you had this whole new shift that occurs in beginning in the 1960s, 1970s. And, and then, um, um, of course, you have Shogun in 1980. And as soon as Shogun <laughs> happens, this, the, the love of Jap- anything Japanese is now the hit of America. And right. everybody's got to try I Can you remember the first time you sampled sushi? I mean, oh, I, yeah, definitely. I, can't, I, got the, I know exactly the location at the time. I thought I was going to die after I consumed it. I mean, intellectually, I knew I wouldn't, but it was always all these things that had been... Well, what was beautiful was the whole aesthetic of surrounding, you know, the... Well, the everybody else was eating, eating it. How you do everybody it. Everybody else was doing it. And I go, not, oh, I don't really don't eat that kind of thing, right. you know. So. And we do have to credit the the food writers for, for making it popular. I credit the food writers for popularizing it, and I credit restaurateurs for really... Embracing uh, it. Embracing yeah. it and, and making it a, a tremendous part of American food today. That's right. Um, a friend's son, Donna, uh, David Gelb, has... Um, made a fabulous film called Jiro Dreams of Sushi. And I have it. It's a wonderful film. Yeah. yeah, anyone who who you'll get hungry looking at it, but it's a it's a wonderful film that really makes you appreciate, as you said, how long it takes to become a sushi master in Japan. Yeah. It's not an easy thing to do. And you do get to see the big whole tunas, which yeah. is, is great. Well question you know, in comes the as you call it the tuna wars, but yeah. there are the problems with regulations, there's a problem with um uh activists, fishing activists and and the dolphins catching the dolphins yeah. getting caught in the net or using the dolphins to attract the t- I mean there's all kinds of things get embroiled in the whole tuna fishing industry and then we have of course the mercury scare yeah canned tuna as well as fresh tuna yep what are we up to now how many parts per million are we allowed to consume of uh, well, mercury of the uh, methyl mercury uh, f- f- to make this a, a long story short, short. <laughs> and, and, and um, the, the answer is uh, the best scientific evidence and there's certainly some people who disagree with it is that uh, unless you eat five cans of tuna a day uh, white tuna in particular that uh, and not skipjack and um, not dark tuna but white tuna uh, you won't have any problem with methyl mercury the problem is methyl mercury goes in your body and it has at least a 50 day uh, half half life hmm. so it doesn't go away mm-hmm. so if you eat a little the body can handle that and it's not any big deal the exception to that and uh, and the one thing that i have told friends if you are pregnant uh, don't don't consume tuna and right. uh, and this is also controversial because there's some people that said well all the good things that are in tuna you you are better than just a little methylmercury in my attitude <laughs> low fat can, high protein yeah <laughs> but it, you can eat a lot of other fish that don't have any methylmercury at yeah. all so why not get the low fat high protein from other fish source and and that is a concern because uh in this case um uh, uh, you know, children and babies in particular don't have any me- mechanism of of getting rid of the methylmercury like adults do, and so it stays there. And there's some some evidence that indicates that um, it can can cause, can cause brain damage, and, and it's not worth the risk. Uh, so that is my only piece of advice based on all the research and and again it's a 30-year time in which there's research has gone from one end saying uh even canning you know even a little can of tuna is going to kill you uh, to uh, to all sorts of things there is no evidence uh in america that any tuna uh with any amount of methylmercury has ever caused any problem with any anyone so right. it doesn't mean that that doesn't have a long-term effect that you couldn't couldn't measure but but that's my best assessment of right, it right right well have we 
exhausted our supply of natural tuna with overfishing? Uh, that was my concern. I will not eat certain uh, species of tuna. I will not eat uh, bluefin. I will not eat yellowfin. I will not eat big eye. The, the, the big ones that are, this, the populations are stressed. On the bluefin, Atlantic bluefin tuna, the best evidence is 80% of the tuna stock that was around in 1970 is gone. And uh, the, the thought used to be if we restricted catching bluefin, for instance, uh, then we would give an opportunity for the population to recover. Mm-hmm. And the answer is there's no evidence that supports that. Uh, the cod industry is a good example. Uh, uh, Canada put uh, this huge uh, prevention of Canadians from from catching cod in, I think, 1994. And uh, the idea was if we stopped it, 40,000 people lost their jobs overnight uh, in the tuna industry or the cod industry in Canada. And the thought was, well, in a few years, the cod in, the, the cod population will uh, recover. It hasn't recovered yet. Hmm. So the, the answer is what you think oh, yeah, if we stop catching them, then they're going to go back to where they were. And the answer is no, that's not true, or at least no no evidence for that. So um, my my end personal answer is I'm not going to eat bluefin. And I, I hate, sorry to say I love the taste of it. Yeah, so. well, you write, that, um, you write about some of the Japanese efforts to farm. Uh, yeah, there, there are some good possibilities. Uh, far, I don't know if farmed bluefin is going to make it. Mm-hmm. it. It just takes too long, and it's too, I mean, too resource Dependent. I mean, you have to feed bluefin for years. It's going to be a mighty expensive piece of fish. <laughs> and you have to feed feed them a diet that they're familiar with. You can't feed them corn like you can a cow or a pig or something of that sort. You really have to feed them fish. And so it's a huge undertaking. And uh, Japanese have claimed that they have succeeded in doing um, in farming a bluefin. And that may be a possibility. A better thought is a single female bluefin will have as many as 30 million eggs in a, in a, in a year. And so uh, of those, only three will grow, uh, traditionally, hmm. only three would grow to, to adulthood. And so the answer is it may be possible uh, in the future to, to get those 30 million eggs and, uh, and if, if uh, seeding works, uh, that you can have more of them survive. And that may be another, that may be a long-term solution too. Well, it's, we may see this whole cycle of the rise and fall go round and round again, right? Maybe. Yeah, my hope is that's the case. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, before we uh, finish up, I do, I do want to talk a little bit about some of these wonderful recipes that oh, you I was, include. I was in hoping the you'd ask. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who doesn't remember from their child? Well, if you grew up in the, in the 60s or 70s or even 80s, I suppose tuna noodle casserole or yeah. tuna nuna as one of my daughter's friends always called it <laughs> we, we're, we're, we're growing up Catholic and of course in the 50s and the 60s you were required to eat fish on Friday or could not eat meat on Friday so uh, it would be tuna sandwich at noon and it would be tuna, tuna noodle casserole at night and so <laughs> I love those you know yeah. to me it was just uh, it was something that I loved in my youth and I still love them today well it so. is funny you mentioned that it has come back it did have a little resurgence as comfort food and it is yeah. there's nothing bad about it it's good and of course then as you mentioned too you know the soup industry got in, canned soup industry got in on it. Campbell's, you know, said, hey, here's a recipe using canned tuna and canned soup, and there you got it. Noodle. Yeah, and noodle I like that recipe, too. I, it I, is good. Far, it is good. far be it for me to be commercial about this, but I think the recipe that they have on, uh, that they've promoted over the years is actually a very a very good one. So. All right. Tell me what one of the, you, and you did some research on these old recipes with the booklets and all. What was, what were a couple of the more unusual, or <laughs> you're making a grimace, all right, with that face. What, what was the most unusual recipe you ran across? 
Um, I mean, there were recipes. The, the, the idea of these cookbooks to begin with was to replace tuna with anything that you got a hold of. And we uh, said any chicken recipe, could any be, chicken you know, recipe. Used well, but those things are obvious and easy yeah. to do. Uh, but then they had start recipes with canned tuna and uh, asparagus. Well, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then then they would have uh, you know tuna with all sorts of things. You know some of the uh, the obvious things are tuna salad works out very well, and then tuna salad easily goes into a sandwich, and so those are are certainly parts of it. Um, they they tried to do. Uh, uh, there were some tuna tartare recipes, which I personally wouldn't try, although I like tuna tartare that's available today. Uh, but those they were doing it at a time when um, they were not fully aware of how to preserve the uh, tuna tartare to make sure that it was uh, edible. Uh-huh. Uh, what about so. tuna chop suey? You had something. I uh, saw that. Uh, that made me cringe. But <laughs> Well, I mean, what is chop suey? I mean, yeah, chop exactly. suey is anything that anybody made that you had left over. And, uh, I mean, historically, it's an Americanization. It's not even Chinese. It's not right? even Chinese. And so it's Chinese restaurants that begin to serve it and, of course, get the visibility for it. But but once you realize that there is no recipe, there is no traditional recipe for chop suey, you can add anything you want in. So why not add a little tuna in? And why not? Uh, yeah. I've not personally tried that, but that seems reasonable to me to to say let's let's put tuna in everything and see what happens. And tuna pudding. Okay, I'm sorry that <laughs> I didn't try that one either. Custard but I, but, I, but I had to put it in just because um, I thought it was unusual and somewhat different. So. Well, as we started out saying, the Mediterraneans had been eating tuna for a long time, and of course, Italians always had a tradition of using having a tuna sauce for pasta. And, of course, the classic uh, veal tonnato. Sure. Veal with the tuna sauce. Well, there you got the fishy veal and the tuna. They finally meet together in one dish. <laughs> uh, well, you can do so many. Tuna, because uh, at least the canned tuna is relatively tasteless. This isn't going to sound right, but it, it's essentially bland. You can add it into virtually anything that you like. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, I mean, in, in one sense, you can add whatever flavoring you like, too. Right. So in one sense, that, that you know, that's one of the reasons on why tuna became such a success. A stronger-tasting fish would never have had the success and haven't had the success that tuna has. Yeah. Well, and we could uh, talk longer, um, running out of time, but about the, the canning industry. I mean, you know, they, they took the oil out, and then they packed it back in oil again. Well, it's good. It tastes good, but whew, I don't know the brainy idea to put it in spring water. Boy, it loses all taste whatsoever. I don't know. You might be well, eating cardboard. Be, because it starts in California, it really started with uh, olive oil. And olive oil, of course, was plentiful. Uh, it was plentiful and it was popular at the time. And um, and it does have a very different flavor than fish oil does. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> so so it, it, it is the olive oil that gives the fish the flavor, uh, gives the tuna fish the early flavor that people loved. And so in one sense, it's one of the reasons on why tuna was adopted so quickly. Uh, but the idea with water, of course, is, well, oil in it has lots of calories, and we were mm-hmm. consuming tuna because it doesn't have many calories. It's low in calories and high in protein. So, okay, I mean, truth. at least that's the idea behind it. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, to me also, I, I agree with you, it doesn't taste as good. Yeah. And the truth of the matter is there, there's very little difference in calories. Well, if you, if, you strain, if you strain the, the oil out yeah, of, the, exactly. of the can, it's not that much right, difference. No. right. All right, America, we're going to go before we – How the way I'm going to close this is we started out saying American tuna. American tuna. Okay, yeah, right. the rise and fall of an yeah. improbable food. What's American left about it? The canning companies, are They're they gone. American? Yeah. No. No. Uh, there's, no. There's no major tuna factory left in, in uh, the United States. Uh, there is some uh, tuna canning going on in American Samoa quite – 
but whether or not that will survive is a big issue. And most of the tuna there is imported in from other countries. So most of the tuna that we consume in the United States today comes from Southeast Asia um, and from the Pacific, um, and not not kept, not caught by American tuna boats or what. So the companies that we come to know and trust Aren't, with American names are not even American owned anymore. Not anymore. Sorry, but Charlie. That's part, but that's part of the whole globalization movement in true. food. So that's it's true. not. It's not just unique to tuna, and uh, and the and and the price of tuna has not, not not gone up as much as every other food item has. That's I mean, right. it's been really it's the it is the, one of the best buys on the market today. That's true. That's so true. Uh, to me, I was interested in how a tuna industry started in America and then how it how it. Uh, its demise, its fall, and it fell in a very short period of time, a 20-year period of time. You had the largest tuna industry in the world in the United States, and about a few decades, you had you have no tuna industry in the United States at all. And so, and part of that was was good decisions. Uh, you know, it's not it's not just methylmercury, and it's not just fishing on on poor uh, dolphins and um, and all of the other uh, international rigmarole. It's also simply because of uh, foreign policy. America made choices in foreign policy, and uh, the idea was you need to have trade with Japan, and this was one thing that the Japanese could provide after World War II, and we didn't have to um, support it with uh, financial contributions, which we were doing up until that time. That's so, right. Lots, lots of reasons. Well, you do a wonderful job of covering all that and more in this new book, American Tuna. And it's been a pleasure, as always, speaking with you, Andy Smith. Thanks for joining. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.